0: So I'm here with Tim Crater, who is the first uh, Zero BJJ Zero. black belt in the state of Louisiana, and uh, judo black belt, former UFC competitor, current coach and owner of Gladiator MMA, which has yeah. three locations, is that right? Four?
1: Four, we have Brobridge, Crowley, Youngsville, and Lafayette.
0: All right. And we're here in Scott right now. Um, yeah. So, uh, where where are you from?
1: Where'd I am you... originally from Lafayette. I grew up on the north side, and uh, rough neighborhood.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, were you uh, in martial arts from a young age?
1: My father was a boxer. So he boxed, like, Golden Gloves and uh-huh. did a couple pro fights, I think. And So he used to bring me to the Lafayette Boxing Club, which is no longer open, but it was open back in the early 80s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, I just remember going in there and smelling, like, the leather and the bags and dudes uh-huh. working out. And I remember just thinking, like, man, this is awesome. Like I can just come over here and punch stuff and throw these medicine balls and jump rope, and everybody thinks it's cool. And that was—I was really young, you know, four or five years old when he was bringing me there. And um, over the years, I played other sports, but nothing ever—everything built in comparison, you know. Nothing was like boxing, uh-huh. like, like fighting was, and I terrorized him. About putting me in martial arts, and then he showed me some pictures of him doing martial arts. And so he put me in martial arts here, and then we moved to New Orleans. And I started doing karate with a guy, Troy Lococo. He closed his karate school, and then I started with another guy named Joanne Kona, who is a legendary martial artist from New Orleans. And uh, anybody that knows anything about Joanne Kona, he's a little, he's on the wrong side of the railroad track sometimes, right? He's okay. hes a little nuts. <laughs> old school bad uh, guy, he's just, bad dude. Yeah, huh? he's, you know, he's involved with some good friends in New Orleans, you know. <laughs> I gotcha. And uh, he's just uh, an old school guy, man, but he was teaching us like MMA back in the 80s. You know, I remember we were doing like... Karate and hop keto with a little bit of judo, and then we learned ground stuff a little bit. So, even back then, you know, he was uh, reading a lot of Bruce Lee's stuff about the ground game and about using um, Savat and boxing movements and fencing uh-huh. steps, and we were learning like a very, very, a very multi art style of martial arts, and you know parents don't really know what their kids are learning when it comes to martial arts they don't really care they want them to say yes sir and no sir and they want them to be able to defend themselves but what the curriculum actually is that a kid is learning my parents didn't they didn't know or care you know neither did i really um but it wasn't until later i realized i was learning mma since i was seven eight years old from a guy who was really an innovator and he fought in the old school like um the silk pants with the dirty chacho mustache, <laughs> kickboxing fights on ESPN, you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Like yeah, he yeah. had that like handlebar mustache and the silk pants with the kick boots and the boxing gloves. He fought in that. And we used to go watch him at the landmark hotel in New Orleans. And um yeah, he would knock guys out, you know, head kicking guys and and I remember at a young age, man, standing on this chair and seeing you know, a couple thousand people standing on their chairs cheering for him. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, man, this is fucking awesome, dude. I want to <laughs> fucking kick people in the face for money. This is great. Um, and so I remember I looked at my dad. I was about eight. And I said, Dad, I'm going to do, do this for sure. You know, I never told my dad I wanted to play football or be a police officer or uh-huh. none of that shit. Foot, baseball, none of that. I, but I always. Uh, did you
0: play any uh, of the t- uh, any other sports? Like yeah, I played football, football, baseball. When I was
1: really good at football. I played uh, in high school, and I played mostly defense. I just wanted to smash people. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to touch the football, or I didn't want people to cheer for me. I just wanted to level people. That yeah. was it. That's all I did.
0: Make sure they didn't want to see you again. I huh? played
1: defensive end and smashed people.
0: So, uh, so you stayed in New Orleans until like what age?
1: 10 or 11 and I moved back here maybe 11 and I uh, was in a couple we moved to the rough side of town I lived on the, on the north side of town uh-huh. and my parents kind of went through like a financial crisis and um, they had a falling out in their marriage and that was tough on us and uh, it was just a tough time in our lives you know <clears throat> my mom and dad found a way to, to keep me in a private school no. but you know we were broke times were tough you know for sure we were living in one of my my grandfather's house and we lived in a rough neighborhood I got in fights a lot I played for a city league team for three years and uh we had about 200 kids show up my 6th grade year 5th grade year 200 kids showed up and I was the only white kid that showed up to try out for the city league team we were called the lisa jaguars i was the only i made it on the team because we only had 30 helmets so i made it on the team but you can imagine it was a rough year Uh i got beat up on the way to practice i got beat up on the way home i got my bike stolen many times i got hit in the face with bike chains padlocks damn yeah, I got in fights swinging my helmet by the face mask. Just,
0: tr- and I'm sure you could get, fight at that point. Yeah, I mean, oh, you been could, through a, a, a good body. bit of training.
1: I could fight, but you know, when you're fighting three or four kids, you know, three guys, <laughs> you know, well, a bicycle only, chain. You, you know, when you, you know, it's not, you know, I, and honestly, it, you know, I mean, some of it may have been because I was white, but it was just like it was a, it was a, it was a poor culture. It wasn't really just because it wasn't because I was white. You know, people who might hear this be like, oh, you got. It was because he was white. No, I wasn't. It wasn't. Other kids were getting beat up too. I mean, it was a it was an inner city neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. was it inner city like inner city New Orleans? No, but it was the north side of Lafayette, and we got in fights a lot. And it wasn't just th- these people. They they. Were, I wasn't getting in fights like being targeted because I was a white kid. Like everybody was all getting fight. in fights. Yeah. Dog so dog. I don't want to appear like like I was the I white you. kid getting beat up. No, I wasn't. Like a lot of kids were getting bullied and beat up, but when you're in an inner-city environment, there's a little bit more violence, you know, and some of those kids, you know, got beat up by their parents, and there was a lot of violence in the streets, and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a more violent society, and so I got in a lot of fights, and I got some, my butt whooped sometimes, but I realized at a young age that I was resilient, and that I could get back up, and that it didn't matter how bad you beat me, I was going to be able to get back up, and I was going to come for you, one way or another, and so I, I... don't look back at that time of my life negatively you know I look mm-hmm. back at that time of my life with a lot of um, positive sentiment because without that I'm sure that I wouldn't be as gritty as determined as tough that adversity that I went through was an integral ingredient in developing me for the rest of my life and so I was blessed to have that time and to have that struggle and to be you know to get your ass kicked and get your bike stolen and to have to walk back with blood on your face three miles teaches you about yourself like okay what am I gonna do here you know am I am I gonna be able to tough this thing out or am I gonna quit and run cry to my parents you know and my Mm -hmm. parents were too busy with their own shenanigans for me to really have that outlet so I had to step up and go you know punch another kid in his face and steal my bike back <laughs> or I didn't have a bike right. and that was the only way I could get to football practice and so I couldn't I couldn't walk six miles to football practice I had to ride a bike so I really attribute a lot of that time and you know, I feel like I was blessed you know I feel like there was a, um, a higher power guiding me you know and, and giving me the you know on some level like the training that I needed for the rest of my life for my future not just as a fighter but you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a, a... I don't have a boss. I don't have like I um, I don't have a safety net, you know. There's nobody for me to go... Like, I'm by myself. I'm... Right. You know, and, and as an entrepreneur in the economy that we have in America right now, and, you know, small businesses, it's tough. And if you fold easy, you better find something else to fucking do. Because this is... Being an entrepreneur in America today is tough. And you're going to fail. And there's going to be a lot of adversity. And so... I feel like those scenarios really molded me for what my life is today.
0: Now were you still training at that time or, or there was a break from New Orleans to...
1: Yeah, there was a break for sure. I still went to the boxing gym sometimes, but there was definitely a break. Um, there was a lot of validity in my home and, you know, it was volatile. Yeah. And uh, I had two younger sisters that I had a lot of responsibility for made make sure to get them to school and get their homework done. So there wasn't a lot of time for right. me to have, like, free time and I also worked at that time at my father's restaurants Um, so I grew up really fast you know I was Uh taking care of my sisters and I was uh, I went to Westminster Academy and so it was really tough I didn't have any money Um, Westminster that's a small school small small private school yeah yeah. yeah. I visited that school a little bit of a um, scholarship program there and my grades couldn't falter, you know. And on another level, I knew how blessed I was because I knew what my friends who I played football with, I knew what their school scenario was like at Northside High School. Uh-huh. And if I was going to struggle or cause problems at Westminster and get kicked out, I was going to Northside. And I knew what that future held for me, you know. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was wonderful. I'm, I'm happy about the, the way everything played out. I'm
0: lucky. So how old are you right now? 39. 39? Okay, you're a year older than me. So um, so I'll transition a little bit. Um, so in the 90s, my brother was working at um, a video store. Um, and uh, for those who are too young, before you could just click on a movie and, and watch it, we used to go to these VHS. stores and get a tape and rent it. And there was a section that had like Faces of Death, videos of just people dying. I remember the section. And um, <laughs> and he got a tape in and it was the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And uh, he brought it home immediately. He didn't even put it on the shelf because he could do that. For sure. And we watched it. And uh, I remember my dad kind of watched it, or he kind of walked in on us watching it and told us, no, don't let your mom catch you watching this. And then I remember Hoist Gracie coming into the uh, – Octagon and and my dad saying, this little worm is gonna get killed, <laughs> and um, uh, and true, what uh what happened was, you know Gracie basically would drag people to ground or take people to the ground and choke them out, make them tap, submit. If you're not familiar with the lingo, and I had no idea how he was doing it. I couldn't. It, the announcers back then didn't seem like they really knew how to explain it. They were sure. like, he's choking him. They could give you that much. The
1: revolution of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. The martial arts, really.
0: So I was, um, I was, I, to me, it might as well have been Jedi stuff. I had no idea what was going on. Um, but it was interesting, and uh, I had, uh, like, a uh, I don't know what you call it, a, a hacked uh, satellite. So I continued to watch UFC pay-per-views for free over the years here and there and um i never saw a brazilian jiu-jitsu gym or a mma gym until i think probably around 2007 and that was in baton rouge so how did um a guy who grew up 60 miles away from me who was the same age how did you i thought this was something you could only learn in brazil how did right. you end up in brazilian jiu-jitsu
1: from so that's a good question. As I, uh, as I got into high school, my whole life, my father, we never watched football, never watched baseball. You know, my dad was a good dad, but he never took me to a football game or a baseball game or nothing. We never, none of that. That that never happened. Uh-huh. Um, but we went to boxing matches. We went to fights, and uh, you know, I grew up when uh, the big fights would be on. My dad would invite a bunch of his friends, a bunch of the guys from the restaurant, or we'd have the fights at the restaurant in the bar. He'd rent them on pay per view. Oh, okay. I thought you
0: meant he had actual fights in the bar. I was like, damn, how big was his bar?
1: (laughs) He was a huge, like. Muhammad Ali fan and Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran and Marvelous Marvin Hagler and um, and I remember the day I remember the day we were sitting in the living room and we were watching I think it was ESPN and they were talking about Customato said that he had a kid from Catskills, New York that was going to change the face of boxing I remember being like nine, 8 or 9 and sitting in the living room and seeing the commentator interview and Muhammad Ali and Customato actually did a little talk and Muhammad Ali was showing Customato how he threw, how he set up his cross with his jabs, you remember Muhammad Ali was really a, a jab, 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 mm-hmm. throw the heavy cross jab, 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 he really didn't hook and uppercut a lot And he was showing Customato, and Customato was telling him he was full of shit, and he was showing him how Tyson, I got a kid that's going to throw uppercuts and hooks and would kill you, and I got a kid who's going to, and if you think about Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson, the major differences is Muhammad Ali throws a lot of uh, straight punches, whereas Mike Tyson was terrifying because he threw rotational punches, uh, uppercuts and hooks that killed people, you know? And uh, Muhammad Ali and Customato were kind of having a little discussion about the differences and... And I remember telling him, I was show, and, he, and uh, Muhammad Ali said, the, the jab cross is the only combination you need to know to be a great boxer. And Customado said, I'm going to prove you wrong. I got a kid that's going to change the face of boxing with uppercuts and hooks. And his name is Mike Tyson. He's from Catskills, New York. And I remember my dad, we started watching Mike Tyson fight. He was young. he didn't have a lot of fights back then he was still just a young kid with his little black boots on and he was just killing people I mean he was knocking people like out of the ring you know I remember thinking this guy is a superhero and uh but my father and I watched boxing like that's how deep of a fan we were you know that's what we did together that was our sport and um so I guess I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school and uh I had never even heard of pay-per-view. I never heard of it. No. But we heard that the Ultimate Fighting Championship was going to be on pay-per-view. And it was the first one. And it was going to be on the TV. You could buy it through your cable provider. And you couldn't buy it electronically back then. You had to call. They had a, they had a thing that ran across the bottom of the screen that says, if you want to watch yeah, yeah, karate versus boxing versus, and it ran across the bottom of the screen, call this number. And we had to put it on channel like 1002 or something. And uh, we waited like 20 minutes, and the screen was just black. And then it click, 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 blinked on. And we watched the first UFC in my father's living room in his apartment. And I think it was 92, 91, 92, first UFC. I think it was 92, 93, something like that. And I was a sophomore in high school. And, uh, you know, just like you, I was like, who is this guy? What is this shit? Because <clears throat> I lost a little bit of my um, I lost a little bit of my passion for martial arts because going to some of those traditional schools and stuff and I tried a couple since then in high school, but <clears throat> I'll be honest with you, they were kind of like shenanigans. You know, it was shenanigans. Mm-hmm. You know, swinging fucking swords and nunchucks and throwing stars and I'm like dude what? what is this is bullshit this isn't real fighting and the martial arts instructors would be like oh you don't understand I was like no I do understand I know how to box if I back up and double jab cross hook this kid right here he's dead I'm gonna kill this kid and I knew how to box like I've been boxing since I was a little kid so I knew how to punch and I knew how hey, uh, hey, uh, was not I knew that was not punching I had sparred with kids, and I knew what real punching was. I had really kickboxed kids. I wrestled for the Y. I knew what real combat sports were, and I knew what we were doing in some of these martial arts classes was lying to people, was bullshit-ass shenanigans. We were selling martial arts to parents. We weren't really learning how to fight. And I kind of had that thought process. But when I saw the first UFC... I had lost a little bit of the belief that there was magic still in martial arts. You know, as a kid, you kind of think like, maybe there's a Mr. Miyagi out there who could teach you some magic shit, you
0: know, uh-huh.
1: and you lose, I lost some of that. And, um, when I watched the first UFC and saw hoist, just effortlessly, destroy guys who were so much bigger and stronger than him. And obviously in better shape, just choking them unconscious, you know, and from wrestling, like I said, I wrestled with Dwight. From wrestling, I knew how powerful grappling was. I had grabbed some, wrest- some boxers or some guys trying to hit me in street fights and taken them down, and they were useless and terrified. So I had some understanding of that, that uh, distance. I was transfixed. To say that I was transfixed was to say the least. I mean, I was awestruck. Yeah. I uh, I think I went to Blockbuster the next day and asked them if they had the UFC. And they didn't have it, of course. It was the day before. And I went probably every week for four or five months. And then finally they got the first one. And the second one was supposed to be coming up soon. <clears throat> but I got the first one. And I remember as soon as I rented the first one, I went up and I asked them, what happens if I lose this? And the lady at the front said, well, if you lose it, it's $40 to replace it, and we'll bill your account. So I went in the car, and I gave my mom $40. (laughs) I told her I'm not bringing it back. She was like, what do you mean you're not bringing it back? You just rented it. I said, yeah, but if I don't bring it back, it's $40, and they're not selling it. So I'm just going to give you $40, and you can pay them because I'm not bringing it back. And I kept it. And I think I still have it at my house. And I watched the tapes over and over to try to figure out what Hoist Crazy was doing on the ground. Like, how was he choking people? How how did this arm bar work, what, the, What is he doing? And I just watched it over and over and over and over in my room. I had one of those TVs with the VCR, in, TV VCR together right, yeah. in my room, and I watched it over and over and over hundreds of hours. And then I would invite some of my high school friends over to my house. And in my backyard... They would compete in UFC matches against me, unsuspectingly, and I would armbar <laughs> and choke them over and over. And With like, punches and everything? No, we didn't no, really punch no. each other. We just kind of grappled. Grappling. Yeah. But they were like, dude, what are you doing? I was like, Pfft. so at sit. a very young age, I was like trying to replicate what I saw. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I was practicing. Like I found a friend who liked it too, and he was my training partner we drilled like we practiced scissor sweep sit-up sweep in the closed guard rear naked choke arm bar from the bottom like just the stuff Hoyes did in the fights we practiced second UFC came we had a whole new repertoire of moves that he did and then we started I figured out that in the intros to his fights he showed a lot of like highlight techniques like him doing a takedown to a guard pass to an arm bar uh-huh. and so then i would replicate those and write them down and take notes and then do them over and over on my friend because he would show those as like look at how cool jiu-jitsu is and so i would replicate that as well and i built probably 40 or 50 moves off of just the first three or four ufcs watching what he did in his sale and in the fights themselves and uh, I really practiced that stuff a lot, and I was good at it, and I could, <laughs> I could do it <laughs> in real life. And I had no idea how I was going to learn jujitsu. I had scoured the internet. I went to a couple jujitsu seminars in Florida. I went to one with um, uh, a Carlson Gracie black belt in the nineties, ninety four, yeah, ninety four, early ninety five. Marcelo Alonso and he taught a seminar in Tallahassee at a karate school and I drove there with that same friend and after the seminar I told him I was like man I've never been able to like wrestle with somebody who like knows jiu jitsu you know I've been watching these for years and I just want to do a training like do a rolling with somebody that knows jiu jitsu and he was like yeah you know, I'm available for some private lessons I gave him like 50 or 60 bucks and He wrestled with me for an hour and uh, just showed me the power of jujitsu in one hour. Blew my brains out of the back of my head. I mean, I was, I thought I knew what I was doing, and he was just, I was a child. I was like a toddler. He was masterful. Like, just manipulated my body with his weight and moved around like water. Just destroyed me. Like, I couldn't do anything, I was helpless. And that was the day I left that karate school and I told myself, dude, I am going to master this art. This is ridiculous. My belief in the magic of martial arts was renewed that day. I realized, oh, there is some real shit out there. I had no idea. I thought I had been just being fed a line of shenanigans all these years, you know? And so could not figure out how I could get to a jiu-jitsu school because at that time in the 90s I knew there was a Henzo Gracie school in New York City which there was no way I was going to get there. And there was the Gracie Academy in Tarzana, Torrance, California. I set about thinking how I could do this. I figured out that if I joined the Navy there was a good chance that I could get placed in San Diego because the second-to-largest naval fleet in the world is in San Diego. And I knew I was a pretty smart kid. So I took the ASFAB and I got like a 97. And I could do whatever I wanted. So I asked them, what schools are in San Diego? And they said, Sonar Tech School. I said, how long is it? Like, oh, about eight months. So after you finish boot camp, you'll go straight to San Diego for about eight months. And I said, well, how can I stay in San Diego? They said, well, when you finish your school, they're going to put a thing on the chalkboard of all the jobs for your rating. And the person who's first in the class picks first, second picks second, third, third. So if you're last in the class, you pick whatever's left. So I said, Well, I'm pretty smart, and I'm just going to study hard, and I bet I get at the top top one or two, and there's got to be some spots for San Diego. So that was my plan. It's like a wow. kid on
0: the north side. So you joined like, the Navy to find your position. <laughs> that's that's so wild, I man. Got out
1: there, California, and I'm probably in San Diego a couple weeks, and I, hear, I start looking, and I hear about. A jiu-jitsu, a no-gi grappling tournament at a guy's school. He's on my shelf right there. His name is uh, Roy Harris. At Roy Harris's school. Yeah. He has a school in San Diego. But at that guy's school, he wasn't even a black belt at the time. He was like a purple belt or a brown belt. At his school in San Diego, he was a student of Dan Inosanto. Dan Inasanto is the only living black belt of Bruce Lee. But the Inosanto group do Jeet Kune Do. And so a part of Jeet Kune Do is ground grappling and jiu-jitsu and grappling and jiu-jitsu and stuff. So all the guys in the Jeet Kune Do organizations were exposed to jiu-jitsu way before the UFC because they heard about the Gracie's when the Gracie's came over here so when they were watching the UFC all the Jeet Kune Do guys knew they were like oh these Gracie dudes are going to kill these guys <laughs> so he was training in Jiu Jitsu way before the UFC even happened because the Gracie's came here in the 70's and they were in Southern California so these Jeet Kune Do guys had already been training with them <clears throat> well Roy was a Jeet Kune Do guy and his school was in San Diego so they had a Nogi school at his Anogi super grappling Jiu Jitsu tournament and I was like dude we are going see this. And only one friend came with me. And uh, there was a bunch of teams there, like three or four teams of people that had like a bunch of guys on their team that all trained in jiu-jitsu. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. What is this? And so I kind of watched everybody, all the teams, to kind of decide, where do I want to go, you know? And I saw this group of kids that was about my age, and they did really well in the tournament. And I asked one of them, I said, where do you guys train? you guys have a school? And they said, yeah, we we train at Sunrise Jiu-Jitsu. And I said, oh, cool, Sunrise, like S-U-N? They were like, no, S-O-N. I said, Son, what's that? They were like, oh, well, the guy who teaches us, Micah Pittman, he's a brown belt in Jiu-Jitsu, but his dad's the pastor of a church, Sunrise Christian Teaching Center or something. And we train in their... Basement facility on a bunch of mats. Micah teaches at over there, and I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's cool." It's called Sunrise Jiu Jitsu, and um, the Gracie Academy was like three and a half hours from San Diego, and I didn't have a car. <clears throat> I went out there a couple times to train, but, um, anyways, these guys encouraged me to come out, and it's the night, early night, mid '90s, '95, '96. I go out there. And Micah was a brown belt under Nelson Montero, who was a Gracie Baja black belt who came here from Brazil. And uh, Micah, destroy, I mean, destroyed me. He's one of the first Americans to get his brown belt and to be really competent. He'd been doing Jiu Jitsu 10 years. His father was a Jeet Kune Do guy, too. So that's how his father and him had learned about it. <laughs> and I trained with them for a little while maybe a year or two in, I was competing in tournaments, jiu-jitsu tournaments, winning tournaments. Like, I was I was in it to win it, living in California. Of course, I was in the military, but I was also doing jiu-jitsu full-time, wanting to fight people. About a year in, we started hearing about MMA fights in Mexico, Tijuana, in a bullfighting ring. A bunch of guys show up, they pair you up by weights. And it was Americans who were putting the fights on, but up by weight. They were just in
0: Mexico because of the laws or something?
1: Yeah, I mean, and it was cheap. You know, it was a bullfighting ring and they put a boxing ring in the middle of the bullfighting ring and no one really got paid. You got 50 bucks if you won and a free drink ticket to three different clubs on Independence Drive in Tijuana. (laughs) That was all it was. And so they would just pair you with somebody else who was there. And it was mostly like military dudes, like some Marines and some Navy dudes and some people were drunk like I fought some dudes in jeans I fought some guys in vans tennis shoes uh, most people didn't know what they were doing we were training for it so
0: this was like those tough man competitions sort of yes, MMA but it was in MMA
1: yeah but it was we didn't have gloves there was the refs had no idea what they were doing
0: well yeah this is probably before they 90s. had the rules that they have now yeah, no, so there was almost, no no same, <laughs> almost no rules almost um, no
1: rules yeah you can kick on the head on the ground you can knee there was no rules and uh, we fought for 50 bucks and I annihilated people I mean we literally demolished people not like hurt people but like they didn't know what they were doing Mm -hmm. like I was practicing double legs guard pass mount armbar like and these guys were there to get in a street fight and they were just getting I mean it looked just like the first UFC's it looked the same thing you know and me and my military friends were just gaining experience we looked at it as we're testing our jiu jitsu there were fights where I went in where the guy I knew he didn't know nothing so I would grab him and sit down and be in my guard to practice my guard because there was no way he was going to take me down. But I wanted to practice on my back and see if I can do that triangle thing joke.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Right? And that's how I learned jiu-jitsu. A lot of my jiu-jitsu was learned with punches. And we were competing in a lot of jiu-jitsu tournaments. And then I was started to find a better team in L.A. And I had a girlfriend in L.A. And uh, I started making the trip to L.A. And I hooked up with these guys who are have multiple fighters in the UFC today. Um, Romeo Aram, Batiste Mansoury, and Javier Vasquez, and they run a school called Millennia, Mixed Martial Arts in Rancho Cucamonga. And they have Lorenz Larkin, and they have a ton of current UFC fighters, a stable of fighters. And uh, I told them, I want to fight, I want to train. And they were like, sure, man, whenever you want to come up here. And I was living in Whittier on the weekends with my girlfriend, so I would drive out to Rancho Cucamonga and train with them and they introduced me to their jiu-jitsu instructor, Rodrigo Medeiros. And I went to the Carlson Gracie Academy a couple times and trained with Rodrigo. And uh, from the moment I met Rodrigo, he was like my Mr. Miyagi. Like, he took me under his wing, and I've been with him since I was 18. Because I got to California when I was 17 years old, and I met him when I was about 19. And I've been with him.
0: So, you were fighting in these uh, fights when old. you were 17, 18, 18 years, years old? old. Wow. Um, hmm. All right. So, uh, And then
1: it got a little more mainstream. We started fighting in California, but it was like uh, completely ridiculous. Like a boxing ring on the top of a parking tower like a parking tower, but the, the fights weren't indoors. They were, like, at a, in a parking tower or something. But there was still a, a commission there and stuff, but there was literally, like, 200 people there. Not know. like today, you go to fights, there's thousands of people, and everybody's like, hey, everybody's having drinks. It, it was nothing like that. Like, we were at rec centers um, outside of high school, gymnasiums, community centers, and there was 100 people, 200 people there. It was that's how bad jiu-jitsu was i mean mma was in the 90s and early 2000s it wasn't until a guy named terry treblecock came along in southern california and brought king of the cage and gladiators challenge that he started having them on casinos because it was still illegal already it was illegal but on on an indian reservation Uh it couldn't tell you nothing but it was illegal in california so he was the first one who got approved to do them on casino grounds. And then he started putting on a show. And that's when it really started to pick up, like 99, 2000, 2001. And then lots of fights started to happen. And then the legitimacy of MMA started to really become prevalent. You know, A lot of the best fighters in the world couldn't even fight in America. There was nowhere to fight. Look at the purses from 2000 for UFC fighters. It's like 2500 bucks. Like, you couldn't even pay your mortgage and your car note. But in Japan, if you go fight in pride, you you come back with $150,000 cash taped to your legs.
0: <laughs>
1: Huge difference, you know? So a lot of the fighters that I started helping train and work with, we would go back and forth to Japan, and we would all take money to our bodies and come back because you can't bring more than $10,000 into the country. Well... <laughs> We're not gonna give the U.S. government. You have one hundred fifty thousand dollars. We're gonna have to give them thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, not happening. So we duct tape it to our thighs. Come back. To the country. Wow. Because the Japanese don't pay you with a check.
0: No, it's just no, cash. Cash. Um, Get out of here. So, did you find him pride? No, I, I didn't. Realize but that, okay. many of my training Other. partners did. Okay. Yeah,
1: and one of the guys I had a gym with, Eve's Edwards, and I had a gym in Houston he fought in pride seven or eight times and I was his head coach.
0: Um, is Jujitsu your favorite martial art? Or? 100%, no doubt. Okay. so like, I like
1: MMA um, but jiu-jitsu is, my, is, you know, I'll do it forever. All my life.
0: So, um, so I'm 38. My son is four. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of thinking about us both going into a jiu-jitsu gym at the same time, so am I too old, and is he too young, and um, and and what do you what do you think about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, we do it all the time. We have people all the time. The best way to do jujitsu is in a family, just like I told you about me and my dad. You know, uh-huh. like I fell in love with being with my dad. I fell in love with what my dad was passionate about. You know, I fell in love with being a part of something that my dad respected and loved and appreciated. And so, in our academy now, there's tons of families here that train, dad, mom, kids, everybody trains. And
0: I can attest to that. I mean, I just uh, witnessed, uh, I guess, a belt c- ceremony, and um, there's uh, a wide age range. And what I saw was a lot of, a lot of love, like obvious sure. family environment. Sure. Um, seemed like a great environment, um, and uh, you know, I, I didn't get to see too much action but um uh, what about people who are afraid of like you know just meatheads like you're coming in they're just gonna beat you up or or strangle you
1: so the thought process of that is a good very good uh it's a common thing right people feel like if you're coming into a jiu-jitsu school or an mma school the there's probably a bunch of douchebags in there trying to beat people up but the reality of fighters, guys like me, is that that mentality, the douchebag mentality, is rooted in very low self-esteem. It is not rooted in a person who is confident in themselves. It never has been. Right? Um, Not that having a big truck is bad, but you know what I mean. Like the big truck and talk a lot of smack and big muscles kind of douchebaggery is not rooted in self-confidence it's rooted in a lack of such and so that kind of person a person who struggles with those issues do not flourish in this type of environment because the reason I flourished in jiu-jitsu was like I said when I was a kid I was in environments where I was I was regularly humbled my bike was stolen I got my ass kicked. I didn't have a safety net. I didn't have I had to stand up and dust myself off and learn that just because it's tough, there you can't quit. There's nowhere to quit to. There's nothing nowhere to go. So when I came to jiu-jitsu and I was in practice and there was someone better than me who was submitting me, it didn't crush my ego. I didn't have that much ego to begin with. I'm a kid from the north side. Like, there was no ego. Like, I already knew I was just a white trash kid. So getting submitted by a bunch of tough guys at the gym who were really nice to me and really cool with me, but when we wrestled, I got the short end of the stick a lot. I viewed that as a wonderful experience. Whereas a person, like the douchebaggish type person, would run away from that experience. They wouldn't stay in that environment where they were regularly having to face their own, what? Ego. Face their own lack of skill. Face their own inferiorities, you know? And what? Improve upon them and get better and grow and and to be honest, like if we have guys in our facilities in our gyms who behave that way, we get rid of it fast. We crush it out of them we smash it from their bodies. We don't allow that behavior to flourish because it's a devastating. It's devastating. It doesn't it doesn't improve your skill set. It doesn't improve you as a martial artist. It doesn't develop your training partners or you. So that mentality, although it makes sense, is void here. Doesn't happen. That person doesn't train here. They they would never come train here. Because you can say whatever you want, you can wear whatever you want, you can have whatever kind of car you want, you can be as big as you want and have the coolest tattoos and tell the best stories, but the mat does not lie. And when we get on that mat, I'm going to cut through all that bullshit real fast and the truth is going to be very obvious. So, a person who needs all that stuff, all those walls up in front of the small man they are to protect themselves, don't survive very long in jiu jitsu because jiu jitsu, just samurai sword cuts through all that and gets down to the person right away. And you have to face the fact that, eh, you know, there's some. I am. I need to step my game up because if the shit goes down. I am not sure I can defend myself and my family. Like This 17-year-old kid just ran circles around me. But the value of jiu-jitsu for a person like you who's 38 and has kids becomes very obvious very quickly. You realize right away, like, man, with six months or a year of this kind of stuff, I can pretty much defend myself and my family against almost anybody in the city. Like, you know, unless they have guns or something, I'm fine that feeling is not something we have a lot that confidence level that and that's why all these people are here all these people are not here because we're doing a big dog and pony show and there's a big you know, rodeo clown shenanigans going on no, they're not here for my personality they're here because the training that we endure and endure I mean the word endure because it's difficult hard. Some nights in my classes we wrestle hard with each other for 45 minutes. That's a long time. Street fights last 20 seconds and they're both about to have a heart attack. 45 minutes is a completely different thing. But when you come to a practice and you can wrestle and train with competent grapplers for 45 minutes you don't have self-defense problems in your life. It's not an issue. It's a non-issue. Um and that is also in of course your ability to defend yourself, but it's in the confidence that you exude. Of course you saw a lot of people here and all different shapes and sizes and but you didn't Females, see you didn't see anybody yes. here cowering or unconfident or scared or mm-hmm. none of these people here are victims. They've been empowered and they haven't been empowered through shenanigans or through uh ninja techniques, they've been empowered through what they can actually do on another live person who is resisting them. And that's a different kind of training, you know. So, yeah, it makes sense, the thought process, but when you look at it from a different perspective, having to face your inferiority every day on the mat, the douchebag can never survive. You know, you never, they're never going to survive. So we have that kind of human coming to our academy a lot and tell us they want to be a UFC fighter, they don't make it through a single practice, ever, never but the guys who I was giving brown belts to today and who have been fighters who trained with me since I started fighting in the UFC, all those guys, they're lawyers accountants, they own their own school they're great fathers, they're great husbands because the, the qualities it takes to be a great father and a great husband and great at your job, great at your vocation are the same qualities that it takes to be great at jiu-jitsu and great at MMA. If you can't wake up on time for work and you can't get your shit together in life, in relationships, well that's going to transcend to every aspect of your life. So these guys who've been around here with me for 10 years, they're not juvenile delinquents. Some of them came here as such, but today they're defense attorneys, they're surgeons they're doctors their we're not here to train a bunch of people to go kick the asses of the bullies in our society although that's a byproduct of what we do the main essence of Jiu Jitsu is we're building better men we're building better people here through what? through a constant visit of adversity through the constant checking of my ego Through surrounding myself with people who are doing the same thing. Those circles empower you. And now we have a bunch of guys who we hang out together. We don't do a bunch of drugs. We don't cheat on our wives. We don't, none of this stuff. I mean, we're, it's not a religious thing. It's a character thing. It's a thing that martial arts was supposed to imbue in us. But it kind of got sidetracked in the seventies and eighties and turned into like a fucking circus. But with jujitsu and the arts that we do now that are real, that you know, when you get off work at five thirty, there's a couple minutes where you're sitting in your car and you're like, man, I got a good shit. It's gonna be real tonight. You know, yeah. that that's real. That's same this. as working out, or right? Anything. That nervousness Just don't is real. Do it. You know. I'm going to do this, you know? And the guy who comes back every day and the kid that comes every day, they don't have bullying problems. That's the least of their problems. So that's what Jujitsu jitsu gets. That's why these people are here. You know, they're not at this fairly unmarked, giant metal building in the middle of nowhere. It's not like we're on a main drag here. You know, it's not like the location is getting people here, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> people are here because of what's happening on the mat, not because of Uh, the marketing
0: tell me if this um, makes sense Uh, so I mean the reason why I would want to put my little boy in jujitsu is I feel like or maybe judo um, is I feel like it's a martial art where he can um, take somebody down hold them down without having to beat them up you know Um, and get expelled (laughs) or something
1: So, yeah, I- exactly. Um, how my children defend themselves at school and from the bully. Uh, face punching is not the best methodology these days. right? And we also know, just in general, another kid punches another child in the face. This doesn't necessarily stop the bullying tomorrow the kid's going to come back with a stick or it's going to face punch you or so the methodologies we teach, takedowns ground control, ground position are so foreign to any of the other children that when a child of ours gets picked on and has to utilize our methods to defend themselves, it's terrifying for another child if you were a child picking on a kid and they grabbed you and threw you over their shoulder onto the ground like a sack of potatoes And then mounted on top of your chest and held your wrists to the floor and said, stop bullying me. You would fucking stop. You're done. We are are finished here. My apologies. And this is the methods that we teach. Now, do all the children here go employ that method on another child in the real world? No. What's scary for children is when the kids from the grade above them or two above them are walking around, kind of making faces at them or bumping into them, and the thought in their head is, what am I going to do if one of these kids picks on me? I don't have a single answer. I am terrified. These kids are bigger than me, they're stronger than me, and I don't have the answers, Once you give the kids those answers, they don't walk around like the same kid anymore. Once the child has that answer, has practiced that answer, knows what to say, has a confidence about themselves that can diffuse those situations, the child doesn't get bullied anymore. It's not that the child doesn't get bullied because they went out there and showed the bullies what's up. It's because when they have the answers to those questions... The fear subsides. And when the fear subsides, the child is no longer a vulnerable target. And when the child's no longer a vulnerable target, not only can they defend themselves, but they can defend others. So this is what we notice. We don't train kids and they go out into the community and they whip the bullies. No, not what happens. Does it happen sometimes? Yes, sometimes. And we get phone calls from principals and teachers saying, Whatever you're teaching them, keep teaching them because this kid's been picking on kids. He grabbed them, put him on the ground, held his arms, called the teacher over. We want to give him a medal yeah. because that is not what's the sentiment. You know, they're arresting kids for beating each other up at these schools around here. So teaching children that. And then, you know, it's more impactful when a child goes through an environment like that where uh, a cousin or somebody picks on them and, they do judo throw them and mount them. The cousin's eyes are the size of coffee dishes, and there's never a bullying problem ever again. And the child realizes the power of jiu-jitsu right, immediately. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I encourage it. We teach the children here eventually some punching and some kicking, just in case. That is not their methodology for defending themselves, but just in case they have to, we right. teach them some of that too as they progress.
0: You okay on time? ask you a few more questions alright so uh, you were on the Ultimate Fighter Mm -hmm. pretty much at like the there was a boom there yeah Um, and uh, it was the first time I've seen you Uh, uh, what was that like what was the whole reality TV aspect of that like
1: um I have mixed feelings about it um I'm so blessed that I had the opportunity to be on the show you know but At the time, I was about 30, 32 or something, and I was married, and I had been living with my wife. We didn't live together until we got married, but once we got married, we lived together, of course, and, you know, I had a real job. I was a district manager for Sprint, and then I was a geophysicist, and I had my own income, and, you know, I came home from work, and we had money, and we... You know, had a real life together and going from that type of environment to being in a house, a small house with 15 other guys that want to kill you who are urinating in each other's beds and food's all over the house. They're stealing your food and they're pissing in the washer and dryer and they're drunk and vomiting in your bathroom and they're it's just when you're a grown man and you've been on your own for a long time. Like I said, I joined the military at 17 years old. I went on my own a long time to live with 15 like children because a lot of these guys were a lot younger than me and they were just like a bunch of frat boys just vomiting and craziness and th- leaving their food all over and plates all over and I kind of have a little OCD and so the house was disgusting and it's a night- it was a nightmare. You know, and everybody wants to kill you, and you want to kill everybody. That's your job. You're there to kill them. You're there to beat them up for America. But they're taking your food every day. It's, it's just a crazy experience. But, like I said before, it's one of those things where if you can flourish in such a high-stress environment, which I'm great under stress, but if you get in this environment and you can flourish in this high-stress environment then fighting's for you. If you get in this environment and it shuts you down and you can't perform and you can't, which we see happen to some guys who are amazing practitioners who get in front of the lights and they shut down, it destroys them. Well, fighting may not be for you. So it's a great litmus test for potential candidates for a life in mixed martial arts. And I have a student who's on the show right now, on the Ultimate Fighter right now, from Shreveport. His name's uh, Matt Schnell Danger. I started training him when he was 16 or 17, he started training with us. And he lives in Shreveport, and he eventually moved down here to Lafayette for two or three years. And then uh, we encouraged him to move out to Miami with Dustin to train with Dustin at American Top Team, because he just got such a great level and so he's been an American top team for the last like eight or nine months and he's on the ultimate fighter now. And I remember him calling me and saying, you know, coach Tim, I don't you know, I don't know if I want to be on the ultimate fighter because the contract sucks and da 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 and you know. And I told him, Danger, you know, you're right, it does. It sucks. And you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. But if you can make this thing work, you're twenty seven. If you get stuck in a two or three year contract where you're not making a ton of money, but you can build a great name for yourself, by 30, from 30 to 35, you can make $50 million. There is no other organization that's going to be able to do that for you. Now, if you finish the Ultimate Fighter and you only have three or four fights and you lose and you get cut, and well, then you can go to another organization and it's whatever. But if you do three hard years at the UFC, and you get 10 fights in, and go eight and two, or seven and three, your next contract is gonna be life-changing. And then with each win after that, it's like compound interest. It magnifies, until one day, buddy, you're gonna fight for a title for eight or 10, 15 million dollars, and you don't have another shot like that. You, you, you didn't go to medical school, you don't even have a college degree. Don't get me wrong, man. You have a lot of potential in some other aspects. But we're looking at a five-year plan right here that can result in millions of dollars. Like, invest the time. Invest. You know, for three years, you might only be making seventy or $80,000 a year. There's people in America that would slap you in the mouth if you said, I'm only going to make seventy or $80,000 a year. There's people in the rest of the world that aren't going to make that in their lifetime. So if you have that opportunity, take it, convert it, and then when the contract's up, the fighter contract's up, cash in. And by the time you're 35 or 37, you're sitting on $10, 15000000 million and you're done. Lights out, party's over, you're finished. You go do whatever you want. Become an architect or,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: like that guy painting on TV or whatever. Do whatever you want. You. But, you know... The ultimate fighter was wonderful. I think I got my opportunity in MMA and in the UFC a little late. If I could have got in there at twenty eight or twenty six, I could have done a lot better. Um, but you know, that's what God had for me. You know, that's that's when I got my opportunity. I'm probably a better coach than I'll ever be a fighter. But um, you know, we all take our we all take our journeys.
0: Yeah, that was gonna be my next question. Is it you know, every sport has that uh um you know the the guys who paved the way and then the guys who come in and get all the money sure and um, I look you know at your record I mean you have uh, what was it 12 wins and almost all of them were first round stoppages. So I, I really
1: have about 80 fights in MMA seventy okay. fights but the record book started five or six years after we started fighting but you're correct.
0: So if you could have ripped off a bunch of first win stoppages you know, when you were let's just say if you were ten years younger and that happened, you could have cashed a lot more checks. A lot more checks. Um, so I was gonna ask you, you know, do you say damn or are you just got no regrets and no, I mean I don't I don't take live, pride in Yeah, I don't live being with one any, of those guys who were...
1: any regrets, man, you know. The guys who like, uh, paved the way. It is what it is and you know, we did what we did and it's whatever. I think there's probably a lot more um, to be had for me in the sport. Um, there's a lot more for me to do. I'm still young, you know. I'm 39 years old, and I got a lot more students to train. To be honest with you, I'm much happier as a coach and as a teacher. And uh, we're teaching 200 and something children here that are going to go on to become some of them are going to become some of the most amazing fighters in UFC history. What would I have become if I would have had a me when I was six? Like, where, what could mm-hmm. I have done? You know, all by myself. I made it all the way to the UFC, all by myself. So if one of these kids has me since they're six or seven years old and has this facility, what can they become? Where can they go? What can they do? I mean, the sky's the limit, you know. And everybody has their role, and that's my role. And I'm so happy about it know my children train here at the academy with me and it's a wonderful experience and I'm a much better business owner than I ever was an athlete you know I don't have any natural athleticism I just worked really hard and tried really hard and um, I look forward to the future though
0: it seems like per capita it seems like Louisiana's put out a lot of good fighters I don't know how many came through here or what but I mean a Dan lot. Cormier a lot came through here. All you of and Dustin and um Rich Clemente Melvin Kyle Guyard, Bradley Eric and Scallion Christian Fulger,
1: Aaron Phillips John Sean Jordan all of them have trained here
0: um Guillard, uh, Melvin Galore I mean uh, it, I mean there's a, a long list it seems like per capita for yeah. a small state yeah. put a lot out there so um uh I think we pretty much covered it. What about let me ask you this one last question. <laughs> what about uh tonight um this uh CM Punk um from the uh wrestling mm-hmm. is fighting on uh on the main court of the UFC. Do you have any uh feelings about that or
1: Yeah, I uh you know, I think people misconstrue what the sport of MMA is it is a business this is a business this is not a a a tough guy contest you know on some level as professional coaches and even as athletes we forget that sometimes but the guys who get the opportunities are the guys who can bring people to the sport that want to pay for the sport regardless of what you think or don't think and a lot of people said the same thing about Brock Lesnar. But both times he fought on pay-per-view, he sold more pay-per-views than anybody else. So you're wrong when you say he doesn't deserve to be there. We live in a capitalist society. And based on the model of the UFC, if you can sell tickets, if you can put butts in seats, if you can make people hit buy on that pay-per-view button, you are going to get opportunities. Conor McGregor, Is not the greatest fighter in the history of the UFC not by far he hasn't done half of the thing a quarter of the things that Anderson Silva did Nate Diaz Nick Diaz not even kind of not sort of but he gets people to buy spend their money this is a business this is the entertainment business and if you can't wrap your head around that it's gonna be tough for you in this business CM Punk Brings The business aspect of MMA To fruition And People who enjoy and love MMA should be excited About it because I believe Mickey Gal is going To champion MMA over Wrestling for all Of us and he is going To show a ton of wrestling fans that professional wrestling sucks <laughs> and an MMA athlete will beat the crap out of you and the miscalculation the mis- by a lot of wrestling fans were that yeah but Brock Lesnar but what you're leaving out is Brock Lesnar was an NCAA Division 1 champion way before he was doing fake wrestling And so CM Punk was not that.
0: And an actual athlete. I I know
1: CM Punk's coach. Athletic dude. He's one of my coaches, Duke Rufus. CM Punk's in some trouble. And we're all going to watch it go down tonight. And it's going to be a devastating blow to wrestling. And it's going to be amazing for MMA. Why do you not want to see that? Why should that be something we want to disparage? Don't you remember when James Tooney, IBF champion, came to the UFC to show Randy Couture what's up and got humiliated, smashed, choke-crushed in one minute? No one after that ever said boxers could beat MMA. That, that conversation ended immediately. Well, the pro wrestling conversation is going to end in about seven hours forever. And that's what I think about it. Do I think CM Punk's a great guy? Yeah. Do I think he's biting off more than he can chew? Yeah. I do think that. Is it possible he surprises someone? There's a possibility. But the worst thing that can happen to CM Punk is he beats Mickey Gall. Because if he beats Mickey Gall, his next fight is going to be way worse than this fight. Because this fight, he may have a chance, which I don't even think he does. But he might have a chance against a kid who's only got a couple fights. But the world gets to see the power of MMA and the power of jiu-jitsu. And that's great. It's incredible. I'm all for it. And who cares? So what? He's a famous guy, and people want to watch him and let him fight. What's the difference? I'm down with it. Yep. Let's get Joe Jetta to fight. Who cares?
0: <laughs> I'll be watching. You got any uh, coming... Uh... That you want to no, promote man, or I, I
1: appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming today. Uh, it's awesome to get to talk about this stuff. So I really appreciate anybody that listens to the podcast. If you've got any questions, hit me up on Facebook or Instagram, Tim Crater, or you can visit our website, gladiatorsla.com. I'm always available. My email's tim at gladiatorsla.com. I'm a pretty down to earth guy. Can deal with any questions anybody has.
0: Great, man. Nice to meet you, man. Appreciate it.
1: All right.